0: Welcome to Tech Culture Interrupted, NCWIT's podcast on building more inclusive tech cultures that foster diverse participation. My name is Dr. Catherine Ashcraft, and I'm the Director of Research at NCWIT.
1: And my name is Dr. Brad McLean. I'm the Director of Corporate Research here at NCWIT.
0: And our special guest today is Tracy Stone from Intuit. Hi, Tracy. It's nice to have you here. Hi. Wonderful to be here. Thank you, Catherine. So I'm
2: Tracy Stone, and I lead a strategic initiative at Intuit. Uh, within the CTO's organization to increase diversity, inclusion, and equity
0: in tech. It's great to have you. And we'd also like to welcome a fellow member of our research team at NCWIT, Joanne Esch. Hi, Joanne.
3: Hi, nice to be here. I am a doctoral student at the University of Colorado in organizational communication, and my research focuses on org culture and change processes.
1: Today, we are going to be discussing the power tilt phenomenon or the unequal distribution of power and influence in tech teams. And it's based on some new research that we're conducting at NCWIT.
0: Yes. And so one of the reasons we're talking about this or that it's important to talk about is because so often in um, discussions around diversity in tech, the focus is on what we call headcounts or increasing the numbers, right? Um, but it it requires more than just increasing participation and the headcount. It matters what people are doing when, once they're in these companies and what kinds of roles they're in. And we know from a lot of research and evidence that even when present in a tech organization, underrepresented groups face difficulties in influencing innovation and accessing core creative technical roles. So we want to try and understand how people are able to participate once they're in these companies and in these roles, and to what extent they're able to actually influence um, technical the future of technical innovation. So in conducting this research, we are engaged in a two-stage process, and the goal of the first stage is really to identify how influence is operating on technical teams engaged in innovation. So the first question we ask is, how is it actually operating? What are the characteristics? What are the behaviors? that people see as being successful in influencing decisions. And then also um, one way to get at this is to ask what makes somebody on those teams influential or better able to influence those decisions. So the goal is really to identify um, in light of prior research and our experience working with technical teams, what are those key behaviors and characteristics. And then um, the goal of stage two will be to develop like I said earlier, an instrument that reveals how influence those valued forms of influence are distributed on technical teams, particularly in terms of those demographics that we're interested in related to gender, race, class, age. So the tool then will help um, see patterns of who has access to those valued forms of influence.
1: Yeah. And I would also add to that, that throwing into the mix of those research questions in these stages, as we've already indicated, uh, are going to be these Issues of meritocracy—the idea that um, progress and success in tech is based on merit—and whether that is a myth or not, or somewhere in between—and also, as we've indicated, implicit bias, unconscious bias, intersecting social identities, the idea of intersectionality.
2: So I think this this research is really, um, really interesting for for companies to to look at in terms of. Um, moving beyond the diversity component of it to looking at the inclusion and, and and do you have a culture that supports that and and the equity are they do women and underrepresented um, minorities have equitable access to those roles and those opportunities to provide influence?
1: You know, and in many ways, I think we, spoiler alert, that no one will be surprised by, we know that it is an unequal distribution of power. We know that not only do we have underrepresentation in terms of headcounts from people from minority groups in tech, we've had this problem for decades, but we expect that this was uh, is going to be reflected in who has access to power and influence. That's not going to be a surprise finding. The question is, in my mind, uh, why is it this way? What counts as influence and how can we craft a culture so that we can achieve a more balanced uh, distribution of power and influence? Uh, Isn't that kind of what we're after, Joanne, Catherine?
0: Yes, I think that's exactly what we're after. I think that's the goal of this uh, study and to develop, uh, actually, which we haven't necessarily mentioned yet, but to develop a tool uh, or set of tools that leaders can use to more um, rigorously or... Uh, consciously analyze how influence is operating and create those more inclusive cultures.
1: Yeah. Like you said before, how this is like the air we breathe. It's so invisible to us and yet we swim in it. You know, We, we, we move around it. So raising the unconscious dynamics, that team cognition that we don't even notice to a conscious level is where I hope we, we uncover actionable findings that leaders can use to you know, electrify their teams.
3: Yeah, and I think that was when we, when a lot of us, and especially in the tech industry, think about how we want influence to work, then we we want ideas to be influential. We want information and data, and you know, good engineering to be influential. We don't necessarily want a specific person or a group of people to be influential because no. You know, no person, no group of people has a monopoly on all of the good ideas. And uh, when people are excluded, then we get uh, we miss out on a lot of good ideas and a lot of good reasoning and a lot of good information.
1: And it's interesting you put it that way. You know, it's, it's true. No, no one group has a monopoly on good ideas. Mm-hmm. But it is also true that one group does have a non- monopoly on ideas in tech. And that would be the majority. Group. In the current
0: state of affairs.
1: In the mean, current yeah. state of affairs. Exactly. One of the most innovative parts of this research is shifting to a focus on teams and in particular, team decision-making. How does power and influence operate with team decision-making? Because we recognize that innovation in tech is happening at the team level. Yeah.
3: So most of the research has focused on person-to-person influence or what happens in dyads. In other words, what one person does that gets another person to comply with a request that they otherwise would not want to comply with or that they wouldn't carry out.
0: Yeah, so it's really about more than just trying to convince somebody to do a particular task, which is what kind of the past research has looked at a lot, right? Wouldn't you, Mm -hmm. you say? Yeah. So in uh, thinking about this um, sort of larger question about how influence operates, we do have a couple of uh, specific questions that we are asking in this study and that we are looking to address. And so some of those are looking specifically at how does influence operate within technical teams engaged in innovation?
1: What really struck me as interesting when we started framing up the question about how influence and power operates uh, at the team decision-making level is that the team's culture, and and it does vary from team to team, actually shape, the, the culture shapes what kinds of influence are likely to be effective and who has access to that influence. And then at the same time, what kinds of influence seem to matter the most on a team in turn create and describe the team's culture so there's this reciprocal relationship between the culture that a team has dictating what kinds of influence work and the kinds of influence that work generating the culture and I thought that was fascinating I continue to find it fascinating as we go forward
2: yeah absolutely and I think it it's it, it, it can be um, can make a big difference in terms of how a team, Operates and if they truly embody that inclusive, uh, inclusive mindset, inclusive culture, so
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, enabling everybody to feel that they can, um, you know, bring forth an idea so that and that feel that they'll be heard.
1: I think one of the goals for our research here is to yield. More actionable findings, you know, that applied science kind of mindset we always have at NCWIT, more actionable findings from the research. How can I create more inclusive forms of influence in my team culture? How can I get those voices to be heard? How can I activate the diversity of thought and life experience that I have assembled on my team?
0: And I think the first step in doing that is getting people to think consciously and intentionally about influence in the first place. Because right now, it's a pretty unconscious um, thing that operates and people don't really uh, think about it at all.
1: So let's uh, talk about the findings of the initial survey. And before we do, I just want to set the reminder, the context was we are asking team members across many teams, across many companies, about their perceptions of what counts as influence and power on their team decision-making. So it is their perceptions, not researcher observations or any other kind of uh, data. It's a perceptual data set that we'll we'll be talking about. But I think that brings up some of the most interesting findings here. The most influential behaviors as perceived by the respondents, uh, the top four are the following. At the very top was addressing other team members' needs or perspectives. So this is the most influential behavior, something that somebody does to achieve influence uh, over team decisions. The second one was presenting relevant data or information to make a compelling case third was building coalitions among other team members. And the fourth most influential behavior was compromising with other team members.
0: And we might also want to point out here that both those top two were very close. So presenting relevant data was almost as influential as addressing other team members' needs or perspectives in sort of tandem there, in some of the ways you would expect, especially since, uh, as we know, having worked with tech companies, they often identify themselves as fairly meritocratic organizations. Their their perception is that they operate on merit, um, although we always uh, complicate that idea, of course. But in some some of these um, behaviors are in line with that, particularly things like presenting relevant data at first glance. Anyway, seems like what you would want ideally to happen in a um, organization that was operating on merit is that the relevant data that makes a compelling case wins the day, right? But we know also from other research that these things aren't as straightforward as they appear um, in our perceptions of who is presenting relevant data are complicated by biases and other kinds of things. And I think you've seen uh, that operate a little bit at Intuit, Tracy.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think this this happens in, in, in any work environment where you um, – where biases can creep in. and so things are you know perceptions around somebody's speaking style, um, their their skills, their interperson interpersonal uh, speaking skills or interpersonal skills can can um, cause some some biases to creep in.
1: when I first looked at this data coming in, you know, <clears throat> I was I was struck by how, how much um, the non-meritocratic items scored fairly high. You know, out of the exhaustive list, you know, these top four reveal at least uh, two or three that aren't meritocratic at all. You know, addressing other team members' needs or perspectives, maybe in a gray zone between being meritocratic or not. Um, Certainly building coalitions to get behind your idea may not be uh, squarely in the the (laughs) field of meritocracy unless you Mm -hmm. look at building coalitions as a merit-based skill, you know, communication that you might have. And certainly compromising with other team members, you know, that uh, I'll give here and I'll take there and this give and take will allow me to achieve my ends or my power and influence. And, you know, the only one that's really meritocratic is presenting that data. And yet we have found working with, talking with um, technical companies about, how these things operate over many years is that there's a belief that they already have a meritocracy. And in many cases, it's this belief that, that it already exists that gets in the way of being able to see the things you're talking about, Tracy, about the bias that might might be lurking just beneath the surface.
3: Yeah. I might push back a little bit against the idea that presenting relevant data is the only meritocratic one or not push back but just <laughs> see it a little bit differently yeah, yeah, where yeah, I go, think go, go. <laughs> being able to meet other people's needs yeah. and listening to being able to recognize a wide range of often competing needs or when you when the company needs to meet two seemingly mutually exclusive goals at once being able to listen and understand and integrate those uh, is it, you know, prof- profoundly skilled behavior. We don't think of, of those kinds of skills as being technical skills.
1: Absolutely. These are even called soft skills, uh, to put the, to find a point on it, is mm-hmm. that um, they're not technical skills in the same way. And and I appreciate your point. The idea, though, that I was trying to communicate was that when we ask people about what a meritocracy looks like, we often hear this blanket statements. Well, it doesn't matter who you are, as long as your code works. A really interesting component of the survey went another step forward, not only asking what were the most influential behaviors, but now let's ask about the differences between what behaviors are actually influential, as perceived by the respondents, versus which behaviors that they wish were influential or in an ideal world, what would be influential. And here the findings are, are interesting. The first top one was that dominating the conversation happens much more in the actual world than is ideal. That Respondents responded. They said, dominating the conversation is way too influential. <laughs> we don't like that. The next one was presenting relevant data, that this happens less than is ideal. So the first one, dominated conversation, happens more in the actual world than they wanted. Presenting relevant data happened less in the actual world. Uh, than they wanted, even though that was listed as one of the most influential things a person could do in the in the first set of findings. And the third one was addressing other team members' needs and perspectives, that this happens less than people wish. They wish that this would happen more.
0: Right. And I think that's exactly right. I think that these though these are initial findings, I think this first one about dominating the conversation, the prevalence of it, does point to a Likely place where we can focus efforts, um, practical efforts to make change and create inclusive
1: cultures. It certainly points out also another non decidedly non meritocratic um, uh, form of mm-hmm. influence dominating the conversation or or included with that not just taking up the oxygen but interrupting you know, on a consistent basis mm-hmm. certainly a diff- I think Joanne even you would have to agree <laughs> <laughs> this is not a meritocratic skill <laughs>
0: right right I suppose you can make the case that dominating the conversation is meritocratic if you have the best idea and you're therefore
1: dominating that <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a cop-out to me well wow. Re- after the fact justification
2: <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of meritocracy I think it's it's more complex so we look at not just um, not just the how but also at the what when we look at how we assess candidates um, we've built in we have this um, program called assessing for awesome or a for a and we look at how we um, tr- work to assess them fairly and trying to um, mitigate or remove any biases in those in the hiring process, and so we're given the opportunity for the candidates. The candidates are given the opportunity to um, strategize, uh, do a task, and strategize in a similar way that they would on the job, and present that to the team that's assessing them. And they look at not just uh, what they're doing, but how they do it, their, their thought process, and their and how they how they thought through it. So we look at their um, both their Skills and capabilities are technical capabilities, but also their soft skills as well.
1: Mm-hmm. It's almost like a A for awesome uh, is a, a way of expanding the idea of what counts as merit. And say, you know, we we certainly want to expand what we value. It's the hear you say it's not what you do only; it's what you how you do it is the means and ends argument. You know, it's not just the ends that matter; the means of how you get there are equally so.
3: All right, so moving on to the most frequently influential characteristics. Our top four were, first, subject matter expertise. And over 80% of our respondents said that this was often influential. And number two is positive reputation. For example, someone who is often sought out for advice among peers. Number three is official title or position. And number four is being well-liked by other team members. So what do you think about these findings? Does anything stand out or surprise you?
2: So I think from from my perspective and is, um, again, the top two, subject matter expertise and positive reputation, I think can be very um, subjective and uh, where biases can creep into this. And so... Um, the subject matter expertise again it could be uh, how somebody um, the perceptions of, of how they are a subject matter expertise and how they share their their data um, and as well as the reputation it could be you know the perceptions of their their speaking style um, their their inter- interpersonal skills or, um, how much they, how, 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 um, forthcoming they are with their information and, and, um, in, in meetings and forums. So this is where the the subjectivity can come into play here. And I think really, um, is, is, uh, something as organizations, we have to understand and be able to look out for, uh, some of those potential, uh, biases that can creep in.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. The, um, The muddiness, uh, how do you define, what are the ingredients to a positive reputation? Very subjective, and and we expect a wide range of ingredients across respondents. And for that matter, subject subject matter expertise is often brought up in the idea of meritocracy. And and we presented in our workshops about the myth of meritocracy. It's like, okay, let's unpack that. What counts as subject matter expertise? And it turns out from prior research that's been established, it matters who it's coming from. It's not just the expertise itself. It's where the source of that is. Uh, Man versus woman, for example. It's very much more likely that a man will be perceived as the expert more readily and more consistently, more powerfully than anybody else. And so it gets pretty, pretty muddy pretty fast. I was intrigued by the finding that official title or position, the power base of position power um, was ranked third below here, uh, below the other two, and being well-liked by by team members made it on the list at all, was a little bit of a surprise to me.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. It was also uh, another surprise, or um, I don't know if it was a surprise, but I think um, another low-ranked characteristic was formal degree and qualifications. And uh, so you can see, like, subject matter expertise makes it into the top four, but uh, that obviously is not tied to formal degree and qualifications. And I think there could be lots of reasons for that, but that was particularly interesting to me in light of the fact that oftentimes when we work with uh, tech companies and hiring, getting that job sometimes does depend on formal degree and qualifications. You know, you need to be from the top five schools or the certain um, field areas or certain, you know, academic backgrounds in that way, but then it doesn't translate to who's seen as subject matter expert uh, once you're in the uh, company itself, perhaps. perhaps the positive reputation one I think is also <laughs> interesting in light of uh, what we said earlier about taking risks and um, and in light of your uh, pillar at Intuit about growth mindset, Tracy, because I think um, in those higher risk, like when when we talk, we talking earlier about the if you make a mistake, um, you're sort of uh, scarred for <laughs> the rest of your career. If it's a high-stakes place like that where the, the, the negative reputation sticks, um, and it's sort of a fixed mindset where you're not allowed to make mistakes or fail in a way that leads to um, growth or innovation, then it's more difficult to um, – Develop that positive reputation, especially when you combine this with things like what we know about stereotype threat. And if you're an underrepresented group, taking those kinds of risks, um, and if they do fall flat, tend to be attributed more to your identity group, or they tend to stick with you more. So it complicates the ability to um, develop a positive reputation, and highlights the importance of growth mindset environments for expanding people's ability to do that.
1: Yeah, the, the stickiness of a reputation, you know, the, the, this idea of a reputation reinforcement spiral, you know, that it, it could go up if you take a risk or get that stretch assignment and it's you succeed and you achieve greatly and, and you start to build a reputation. It spirals up and up and up, literally resulting in higher and higher positions. And, and salaries, and success, and visibility. But by the same token, if you take risk and it doesn't turn out well, even if it was the right thing to do, to take that chance, and then your reputation is reinforced in a downward spiral. Or if you never get the task assignment in the first place, you get stuck with a reputation for, for not having taken risks even because you haven't had the opportunity to do so. It's also a spiral down in that reputation reinforcement spiral dynamic.
2: Yeah, and I see this on both sides of it, both from the employee's perspective of just being comfortable, you know, taking that stretch of assignment or taking that risk and feeling that they'll be supported. And even if they do fail and it won't be something that will negatively mark their their reputation or their brand, um, and also on the manager's side of being comfortable giving those stretch assignments to different people and, um, and you know, tapping people that haven't been proven. But how are they ever going to get proven the chance to prove themselves unless they get the opportunity? So it's on both sides of it um, where if you don't have that culture in place of a growth mindset, then, um, then, yeah, you won't ever have, you know, new people that haven't been, you know, given those opportunities.
0: And this area of characteristics, another thing we looked at, as we did in the previous section with behaviors, was the difference between what respondents thought was actually influential in terms of characteristics versus what they wished was influential in an ideal world. And so we um, identified four characteristics where there were the biggest gaps. And in all cases, these four characteristics were more influential than team members wished they were. And those were official title and position, being well-liked was number two, and number three was seniority or time in the company, and number four was budget control, having control of some type of financial resources. And so those were the four that they thought were actually more influential than they wished in an ideal world.
3: I also see our in this answer or in this finding a recognition that official title and position and seniority aren't necessarily seen as perfect proxies for experience and
0: expertise. Right. Good
1: point. Yeah.
0: It's interesting that two of these, you know, official title and position and well liked were both on the top 4 characteristics. So not only are they, you know, more influential than people would like, they are ranked as very influential
1: overall. Now, in this case, I would say that these seem to support uh, a traditional view of a meritocracy. And in a meritocracy, we would not want these four items to be as influential as they are. And in fact, that's what we found, which tells me whether or not we believe we have a meritocracy on our hands already. Um, We have it as an aspiration. In fact, having these listed as more influential than we want them to be, kind of signals to us that the respondents agree we do not have a meritocracy on our hands or these wouldn't rise to the top as being more influential than I wish. So I think one of the interesting parts of
0: these findings and what will lead to the next step in terms of developing the instrument that will help leaders create more inclusive forms of influence is that these kind of findings help us think more intentionally and more consciously about the ways influence are operating on our teams in ways that we may not have realized. And so then we can identify what is maybe more influential than we would like and what is less influential and then and who has access to those. Um, and then we can begin, once we understand that and identify that using the instrument, we can address those uh, inequities and create more inclusive forms of influence.
1: Which kind of brings us to stage two, looking ahead. Our plan is to take these results and uh, apply them to a more sophisticated instrument, which will go through a validation process in order to, um, you know, give those tools exactly as you described, Catherine, and put them in the hands of leaders. You know, uh, applied research is the name of the game at NCWIT. We're not just going to put it in journals for other academics, but actually making it actionable, research-based practices and inclusive leadership. And I'm guessing, Tracy, that that kind of tool could find its way into your inclusive leadership training in many pillars, perhaps.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think we're really looking forward to Having a tool to complement what we're doing with our inclusive leadership framework, and I love how um, you said it was—it it has to be intentional. And so that's how we think about inclusive leadership. It's—it's not—it's—it's it's not easy. It, it's hard, um, but it's something we have to be intentionally doing in terms of um, you know tapping into uh, all the diversity that we have on our teams. And so I think this tool is exciting for us to think about how we can, how we can um, use it and have, help our teams um, help to understand better about how influence is happening. What are the dynamics um, on your team? Uh, what are the systems and processes that, that each team is using? And, and then how do we um, you know, help ensure that we have a more inclusive approach to how influence is happening in our innovation and our development?
0: And I think it's also important to mention that this tool will help um, address issues of intersectionality and how um, we talked about the different, you know, access to these forms of influence in terms of demographics like gender, race, age and class, but also uh, not just those as homogenous groups, but the different kinds of intersections um, that people who belong to multiple categories and how that affects their access to influence.
1: This brings us to the end of today's podcast. To learn more about building inclusive cultures in tech, check out our Tech Inclusion Journey online platform. We designed this powerful tool for change leaders like you. And be sure to check
0: out our other podcast episodes on inclusive culture construction wherever podcasts are found or through our website at the National Center for Women in IT, ncwit.org.
1: And now for some thank yous. First of all, our special guest, Tracy Stone from Intuit.
2: Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.
1: And Joanne Esch, our researcher from NCWIT.
3: Thanks. I'm excited for the next step.
1: We'd also like to thank our partners here at Coop Studios in Boulder, Colorado. Taylor Marvin, our sound engineer. Aaron Lasko and Eric Singer, our producers. Daniel Sproul, who created our theme music. And Hamilton Studios in San Francisco, where Tracy has been remoting in for this podcast.
0: And from NCWIT, we'd like to thank Lucy Sanders, our CEO, Terry Hogan, our CTO and president, as well as Adrian Bradbury and Sierra Kelly, our crack communication team, who also designed our logo. And to you, listeners and change leaders, until next time.